Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Have you been dreaming of moving abroad? It's something that more people are talking about these days. Some even make it permanent. In 2020, a record number of Americans, more than 5,000, gave up their citizenship in the first half of the year. But the numbers dropped sharply in this third quarter. Still, it's something of a trend. Until a decade ago, fewer than 1,000 Americans per year on average chose to renounce their citizenship. But that doesn't necessarily mean if you move abroad that you're planning on renouncing your citizenship. But to talk about some of the challenges of Americans living abroad today, we have guest Virginia Latori Yaker. Virginia has over 35 years of U.S. tax and international experience and has been practicing U.S. tax overseas since 1986, spending 15 years in Hong Kong before moving to Dubai in 2001. Virginia has experience in cross-border transactions and structuring, FATCA, regaining U.S. tax compliance with previously unreported foreign income, assets, or accounts, expatriation tax planning, along with step-by-step expatriation guidance, and providing specialist advice for international families in numerous areas of U.S. international tax. She's also an accomplished author, having published three children's books while living in Hong Kong. So clearly, she's been busy. Thanks so much, Virginia, for being on the show. Oh, Kelly, it's my pleasure, really. I've been looking forward to this. So I want to talk about those statistics, first of all, kind of, and and, uh, it's surprising to me. I know that it's been a trend to see folks renouncing citizenship, you know, and obviously COVID has kind of changed the way that people look at the world and look at travel. What has been your experience over the last, let's say, couple of years taking into account COVID? I think pre-COVID, we were still seeing a large number in the grand scheme of things. I view it as a large number of expatriations, meaning that the trend was going up. Mm -hmm. If you look at the statistics, we had a drop in 2019, but I I don't believe that drop is real in terms of numbers of people that gave up their citizenship. I think there was a backlog with people expatriating that could actually be reported from the various Dubai consulates and embassies throughout the world over to the IRS who handles listing this publication. So I think that that lowest number in 2019 was just a fluke. And I think the gigantic number in 2020 of over 6,700 expatriates was actually reflecting some numbers from 2019. But in my practice, I did my first expatriation, I believe it was in 1993 back in Hong Kong. The tax laws were very different and no one knew anything about expatriation. I mean, it was starting from scratch, learning all of the law. And you would see maybe, maybe in a five-year period, I would see one or two people expatriating. Mm -hmm. But that, that drastically started to change. I'm going to say I started to see an increase in my own practice in about 2008, 2009, after the UBS fiasco with Bradley Birkenfeld and people realizing, my goodness, we have to 
comply with various tax rules. We haven't been compliant. We're really not treated as U.S. citizens in our own family. We consider ourselves to be French or German or whatever, and we were just by mistake born in the U.S. and achieved citizenship. So we started to see the numbers increasing then. And after 2010, when FATCA was implemented, people didn't realize what FATCA really meant. Right. But they they started to see it. I mean, even the, the financial institutions weren't understanding what, what does this mean? So FATCA has been around now for 11 years and people are still coming to grips with FATCA. But I think we are seeing due to the burdens of the tax compliance and the banks and other financial institutions no longer really welcoming U.S. persons as their clients, which means they can't have a bank account to accept their salary. They don't have an account for pension payments. They don't have um, an account to make mortgage payments and things of this nature. Life becomes impossible for them. Right. One of the things you said is actually really interesting because I think when people talk about this a lot of times, they paint it really, really black and white. They say people will leave the country for taxes. Like they, that's kind of, I think, this perception in the US that you're leaving because you, you want to live on the Riviera and not pay your taxes. Right. But it's really interesting what you said because you mentioned that like a lot of people consider themselves citizens of other countries and they just have this tie by birth. That's what I've also noticed in my own practice, that there may be people who have lived most of their life in some other country. And now they're kind of coming to grips with what it means to remain a U.S. citizen. Is that most of what you see? Or do you see the, because, you know, the perception is that they always say um, when you see the headlines about, you know, when the, when the publication posts those numbers, they almost always reference tax code. But I've always had the sense, and again, maybe it could be our practices are different, that tax was a secondary consideration. I think tax was maybe even a third consideration, not even up as a second. In my practice, what I'm seeing, most of the people that come to me have another nationality from birth. Perhaps their parents were studying in the U.S. at the time they were born. So they acquired citizenship automatically at birth. They left as an infant or a young child. I see a lot of that. I also see a lot of U.S. citizens who are born overseas, but one of the parents is a U.S. citizen. And through that U.S. citizen parent, the child who may be born, for example, in Hong Kong, automatically acquires U.S. citizenship at birth. A lot of these people may never even visit the United States or live there, yet they're U.S. citizens. They have completely built their lives in a foreign country, and they are being saddled with the U.S. tax complications. They may not even owe any U.S. tax at the end of the day, but it is trying to deal with the tax laws, which you may know from your practice, are skewed in a way that anything foreign is looked at with a very jaundiced eye and in many instances is clearly punished. You know, take the example of someone who invests in a foreign mutual fund. They're going to be hit with all of the tax rules under the so-called passive foreign investment company or PFIC rules, which will totally destroy their investment. And, you know, for them, they may not be welcome to invest in a U.S. mutual fund. Right. They're trying to save. They're trying to do what the average American is doing back in the homeland. But yet, because of our tax rules, they're being thwarted and, and punished because 
they're living abroad through no fault of their own. Or even if they choose to live abroad, perhaps they've taken on a job. You know, when I moved overseas in 1986, I didn't know, I didn't think I would ever actually be coming back to the United States because my husband is not a U.S. person and he he did not really like living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You have many situations where people, their life circumstances change and they have to adapt and the tax laws prevent that. And I think we're seeing more of that under COVID. I think, um, you know, I, I kind of opened with saying, have you been dreaming of moving abroad? I think there are a lot of people who maybe had a taste of remote work, for example, and thought that that wasn't possible before, you know, it, it, they've always been tied to a desk and they're like, you know, maybe now I want to live in Ireland because that's where my grandmother lives. And maybe now I want to live in Greece because that's where my cousins live. We joke in our house because my, um, my kids' cousins live in, in Turkey and uh, my son has been uh, furiously looking for U.S. colleges because he doesn't speak any, um, in any of the languages over there, but he's been looking at U.S. colleges because he wants to go be near them. I wonder how much of that we're going to see because, you know, we we talked about those expatriation numbers, which are high, but they're high for what they are. They're not, I don't think, representative of the number of Americans, obviously, that are living abroad. So those numbers I expect to go up. Is, is Do you have a sense that you think that's going to happen or, or what do you, I mean, obviously no one has a crystal ball, but have you heard people talk about more about moving abroad? Because I live abroad. I'm not stateside. Mm-hmm. I'm not really hearing the kind of thing that you're hearing, but I am certainly reading an awful lot more in this light that um, people are becoming more curious. There are an awful lot of writers now that are explaining, oh, I can help you relocate and make it easy for you. These are the countries I'm dealing with. Many more second citizenship programs are being looked at by people. I see that. So I think that with COVID and the changes it has wrought, people's eyes are opening up a bit more. And I believe in the news, you know, we're seeing, for example, how different countries have been handling the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The United Arab Emirates has done an amazing job, in my view. We have vaccinated so many of the population already. And I think when people start to read about other countries that may be handling it quite well, and they compare it to the frustrations they're having in the United States, they will certainly be more open-minded to, gee, you know, maybe I can work abroad. All I need is my computer. And, you know, I have my cousins living wherever in Ireland or whatever country it may be. And I, I think that the U.S. is going to be forced to open its eyes in a way and see that maybe more and more people will want to live overseas and they're going to have to adjust the tax system to fit in with that. I definitely agree. It's not working. What we have now is it's just not working. What I find very troublesome is the fact that when people immigrate to the States, you know, getting a green card or naturalizing to become citizens, they are totally unaware of the tax responsibilities that the U.S. imposes on them they have no clue. Right. I see the the tests for citizenship, you know, who was the first president or which is the longest river in the United States. I mean, questions that just don't have anything to do with my view of what these people should know. And uh, there's got to be some education put in place prior to someone being allowed to get the green card or, or become a citizen about the tax system we have. 
so many of these people still have overseas assets. They have foreign pensions. They have foreign life insurance policies. They own foreign real estate. They have foreign investments, foreign businesses that they haven't just thrown away because they've become a U.S. person. And yet the tax system will punish them very heavily for these various assets that they own if they're not reporting them properly, or even if they are, as I said, you know, we've got regimes in place that that make life as an overseas American very, very difficult. Right. So I see more of what the kind of person that you're talking about now than I see of the other. Like you, because you're abroad, you see more Americans moving other places. A lot of my practice was it revolved around folks who were here from other places, some of whom were just green card holders, but that did make them U.S. taxpayers. Um, and I, it's, it's very interesting because I work closely with an immigration lawyer and, um, you know, so many people spend so much time trying to get the green card. It's really interesting to me when people are ready to give it up because you, you feel like, you know, cause there's always someone whispering in their ear, like, you don't know what if you want to come back. Right. Um, but the tax burden is, is troublesome for people who aren't going to have a continuous U.S. presence. And that's sort of kind of the clients I work with often is I, I do have some of the people that are kind of accidentally fall into the FATCA reporting requirements. But then I, I have folks who have come here to work and they brought their families and the intention has always been to return. And right. they did not realize that if, if, you know, just going back doesn't cut off those reporting requirements. That's right. That's right. We have special procedures to properly give up the green card from a U.S. tax perspective. And if you don't meet them, you have big problems. Right. It's very expensive. Mm -hmm. Yes. I see a lot of that. And I see as well, there's a lack of education in terms of the green card holder who's held the card for at least eight years. If he wants to give up that card, he's treated just in the same manner as the U.S. citizen who is expatriating and giving up his U.S. citizenship. So he can end up being this this horrible creature called a covered expatriate and subject to all of the, you know, mark to market tax rules and transfer tax rules if he leaves a bequest or gives a gift to a U.S. recipient. These these are rules that people have no idea about. And then they find themselves in a big mess. Any person that's got the green card has to be very aware of this eight year rule. And I've had a number of clients come to me and say, oh my gosh, my job didn't tell me that. And I was, you know, getting this re-entry permit because I was still working overseas for the company. So they were getting special approval from the U.S., for want of a better word, that they could still remain outside of the U.S., but not have the green card be revoked. They're not informed. So they continue to hold the green card because their company kind of wants them to, in case we want you to go to the U.S. And then magically, you know, they've hit the eight-year mark, which, by the way, eight years is counted, short tax years count. So in other words, if you get your green card in December 1st, on December 1st of 2019, that counts as a full tax year for purposes of this eight-year rule. Mm-hmm. So, you, can, you know, you can hold it for what you're thinking is, oh, I've only had it six years, but really it's going to be eight years under the tax rule. They are just devastated when they find out that they can be covered expatriates. Some of them, you know, are covered expatriates because they've given it up without proper planning or proper advice and uh, find themselves in a, a nasty situation. 
And I think I found this fascinating because when we're talking about all of these different kinds of situations where someone can fall into these categories, right? You can sort of end up in situations that you didn't anticipate being in. And it's really interesting when you kind of compare that to the perception of folks who are either moving abroad or have assets abroad. And and I, I find this really fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, but when we were we were talking about this on Twitter yesterday, we were I was talking about the crypto situation and how it's reminiscent to me of the offshore crackdown on the 1040 and then and and what followed when they started asking that question, you know, do you have offshore assets on the 1040 and and kind of setting you up for the the penalty of perjury issues. Um, And that's what they're doing, you know, now with crypto. And one of the responses, a couple of the responses were, well, that's, it was kind of along the lines of that's what happens with people who have resources abroad, right? Like there's this idea, I think that people who either come from abroad or move abroad have more money. And I think that's what's really fascinating because I think that that's what causes the lack of empathy on the U.S. taxpayer side. Like when they hear people like you're in Dubai right now. And when you're talking about this, I think there are going to be people who are like, well, she's overseas. She must be rich. That's what she gets for leaving. Do you know what I mean? Like there's definitely this sense of, and I see the same thing with my folks who ended up having FBAR reporting requirements that were small. I mean, I don't think people understand, yes, $10,000 is a lot of money, but sometimes it's actually not cash in hand. I mean, I've had taxpayers who have had assets that were reportable, but were not transferable. So it didn't really help them to own them, but they still had to report them and potentially um, be taxed on them. And I, I think that's the disconnect, right? Like people assume I think we assume outside of the U.S. that it's it's glamour and wealth. That's right. I think that is a very valid point. And of course, it's not true. It's not true. We have many, many people who were struggling <laughs> in Dubai before COVID. And, and now it's it's become much, much more severe. I think part of the problem that I see is there's no real appreciation for what it means when someone moves overseas. The person who typically moves abroad is trying to deal with a lot of changes, cultural changes, the rules and regulations of the country he's moved to. And, you know, finding work is is not easy. When I came to Dubai, no one was interested in U.S. tax at all. I mean, I had to start from scratch and it was very, very difficult. I was teaching at part-time. I was teaching law at several American universities to, you know, keep something going in terms of mm-hmm. getting some money earned and building up the practice very slowly. And fortunately, uh, we had the issues with UBS and Bradley Birkenfeld when Americans abroad woke up and saw they had all of these tax issues that they did have to deal with. So when you overlay the U.S. tax complexities for people on top of what they're dealing with in the foreign country, it is not all glitz and glamour. And, you know, if you simply look at some of the tax provisions affecting Americans abroad versus the homelander, you look at, as I mentioned, that U.S. mutual fund versus a foreign mutual fund investment, the harsh tax consequences that are hit there. You look at a U.S. bank or brokerage account versus a foreign bank or brokerage account. 
the reporting that needs to be done on FBAR or Form 8938, uh, this business of having any foreign financial assets, people look at it as foreign if it's a foreign partnership interest or if someone owns stock in a foreign company thinking, oh my gosh, that guy must be so rich. No, he's not. He might be working in a partnership the way someone else in the U.S. is working in a partnership, but because he lives abroad, it's a, quotes, foreign, close quotes, partnership, or he's owned stock in a foreign company because he's a shareholder owner of that company. So, for example, if you want to live in Dubai, in the UAE, you need a visa to be here. And many times, the only way to get a visa, if your employer doesn't give it to you, is you've got to set up a foreign company, you know, in the UAE, and that will be able to issue you a visa to stay here. Mm -hmm. So, so many complications arise just in the course of you want to live in a foreign place that in order to do it, you've got to jump through a lot of hoops and you've got to satisfy on top of that the U.S. reporting requirements that may come along with your life that you consider normal everyday life. My my employer has me you know, listed. I'm a participant in a foreign in his pension plan. That's my job. Well, to the U.S., that's a foreign pension plan. You must know from your practice, how do you report those things? Is it a foreign trust? What is it? Is it a public investment? So, you know, you have the typical expatriate living overseas and working abroad is thinking, what's going on here? I mean, I just have a job the way the guy in the U.S. does. But here, I, I don't even know how to report it. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I think a lot of what drives kind of this notion, it's funny, you know, the we love to watch movies like, um, you know, Julie and Julia and, and Under the Tuscan Sun, where someone moves over to to a, a foreign country like France or Italy. And, you know, the, the whole movie is the, the struggle to find a plumber or, you know, the, the struggle to find the cheese that you like. And you never see the struggle to understand the tax code or the struggle to understand how to open a bank account, which is also problematic for people coming to the U.S. trying to open bank accounts here. But, you know, when you mentioned about like, it's not even just employment that can be problematic studying abroad. I actually have told the story on the on the podcast before that, you know, looking back, I lived abroad in the UK for a year. I studied abroad. And back in the day, you didn't have the easy transfer of money that you have now. So we actually opened a bank account in England and deposited over the $10,000 threshold because it was the money that was my student loan money that was supposed to get me through the year. I was hardly wealthy. I was a struggling student. But, you know, in the, in the U.S. tax code eyes, that, may, that would make me reportable. And I think that's kind of the disconnect that people sometimes have is that they assume that we're talking millions of dollars when we're talking sometimes just tens of thousands of dollars. Yes, that's a very, very valid point. I think that what people need to really become more aware of is that a lot of the reportable items we see in the foreign aspect, like you're mentioning about the foreign bank account, these are things that for the person living in that country, they're normal everyday parts of his life. Mm -hmm. I mean, someone needs life insurance, right? If they have children, if they have a mortgage going, they want life insurance in case something happens to them. They want to make sure their family is going to be protected and so forth. Well, quite often, guess what? U.S. carriers won't issue life insurance unless that person is U.S. resident. 
So they're going to need foreign life insurance. Mm-hmm. And foreign life insurance causes U.S. tax issues for these people. And it, believe me, it's not because they're millionaires that they have a foreign life insurance policy. So you raise a very good point that I think a lot of it is a big misconception, thinking that everything is glorious under the Tuscan sun, you know. Right. It isn't. It really isn't. What advice would you give to people who are thinking of moving abroad? Like, even if it's not permanent, let's say folks are, they're kind of done with where they are right now and they want to move somewhere sunshiny for a year or two. Like, what advice would you give them in terms of, I think probably the the first question is how, how do I find somebody who can help me? Because if I'm moving again to a country where maybe I don't speak the language or it's not something I'm, maybe I know enough to get by, right? I can buy mushrooms at the market, but I don't know how to ask, how do I find someone to help me with my taxes? Like what kind of advice would you give folks in terms of what to look for and kind of like flags to look out for things they should be considering? Well, I think that what people can do, because it's it's not just tax, they want to understand a little bit about the country they're moving to, what they're going to be facing, to see if they can get some information some input from like local groups. Sometimes there's a group, for example, called American Women Associations in these countries, similar things to that nature, mm-hmm. that they can start to liaise with them, surely online, and see if they can get some pointers from those people. In terms of finding a good U.S. tax return preparer who can give you advice before you make the mistake, because What I would see happening is people move abroad. They're all excited. They say, oh, okay, I'm going to, I spoke to so-and-so and and he said, this is a really good investment. And more often than not, it's, it's like a portfolio bond or a foreign type mutual fund that's going to cause them nothing but headaches. They're not being advised by a U.S. savvy advisor. There, you know, there's many people living abroad. There's UK people living abroad. And many of them are in the financial industry. There's French. There's all kinds of people you're going to meet in this foreign country who are financial advisors, but they may not know the U.S. tax situation about the product they're advising you to invest in. Mm -hmm. So before I tell people, before you do anything, buy a foreign property, invest in something, you've really got to check with a reputable U.S. advisor. How do you find that? I really don't know. There's so many people online that are, you know, that are out there. When I'm trying to find someone, I, I Google a lot. I read if they've written articles and I see the quality of what their products are in terms of articles or podcasts, blogs, etc. And then I get a feel for it. They don't know or they do know what they're talking about. Right. But again, I'm a tax professional, so it's it's easy for me to separate the wheat from the chef. I don't know for the average person, but I have had a lot of people, for example, write to me, send me an email and say, oh, I've read your blog here and there and this and that, and it seems you are very knowledgeable in this. Can you help me? So I think people are doing a certain amount of due diligence, mm-hmm. but you will always get the people that say, oh, but you know what? So-and-so can prepare my tax returns. They said any expat return for $500. And I just tell them, well, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that they're really going to go through your situation with a fine-tooth comb and make sure you're doing everything you should do. 
But again, you, Kelly, I'm at the stage where I don't want to convince people that they should use the right tax advisor or that they should come to me for advice. I feel like, look, I don't want to argue with you. If you want to spend $500 to get your tax return done, then by all means, good luck. But I think that sort of situation, people have to really look out for that. You know, they, Some people have a very simple tax situation. And yes, their return can be prepared for $500. But when you start talking about some of the issues we've discussed just now in the past half hour, that kind of return cannot be done for $500. I do think that the price shopping thing is is something that people should be aware of because there are a lot of folks who can do, you know, they know enough to be dangerous. They've read some things, they've been to a CLE, they feel like they know, but they really don't have experience. I, I think that one of the things you mentioned about, you know, kind of when you Google, also ask people, like, do you know this person? Do you know, oh, yes. you know, yes. and, and people in, you mentioned those online groups, people that are in those similar situations, because that's something that I recommend not just for folks abroad, but um, also folks who are coming here to the U.S. Like, if you have your social club, ask ask your fellow Germans <laughs> who they yes. use. It makes sense right. because you know you're going to ask them where they get their hair done. Why wouldn't you ask them who does your taxes or who gives you advice? And that's when you can start investigating those people. That's correct. I think more and more people should be doing that, but I don't know that that's really I, I, the norm. I think they'll be more inclined to ask where they're getting the hair done and just <laughs> True. Find the $500 tax deal. True. You know, it's there, but I'm finding that. So in terms of like outside of finding a preparer, what are kind of, uh, if you had, if somebody called you up today and said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of moving to, again, Dubai, Turkey, wherever, what would be like three pieces of advice that you would give them in terms of kind of things they need to find out before they buy their ticket? Ooh. <laughs> I think what they better find out is which neighborhood is going to be a nice neighborhood for their particular situation. Mm-hmm. A lot of people move. They don't. They, you know, they think, oh, I'm going to Dubai. And we've, we've seen this, for example, with package deal. Oh, we'll put you up in a hotel and you'll have beaches and yada, yada. And these people end up in a remote area of another emirate. They're not even in Dubai. Mm-hmm. So they have to be very careful and, and do their investigation of where they're thinking they may live. Try and narrow down an area. If you have children that are in school, which schools are you looking at? You know, are they doing the American school system, international baccalaureate system? What are your requirements? How far away is that school from where you are planning to live or where you think you are going to live? Find out about traffic. I mean, oh, it's only a 20-minute ride. Well, a 20-minute ride in Dubai during rush hour can end up being a 45-minute ride. Right. So there are a lot of very practical questions. And again, I think that kind of question is best answered by these local groups that we're mentioning, mm-hmm. American you know, Women's Club, et cetera. So that would be one is, is location. Find out where you're going to be. If you have an employer already, that would be a wonderful source of information for you, people right. that are working there. If you don't have a job and you're thinking, I'm going to do freelance until I find the perfect niche for myself, okay, you've got to really be prepared in terms of finances. Do you have enough money to carry you for a year if you're not going to earn anything? You know, could happen, mm-hmm. right? So you, you're going to have to make sure that you have kind of a backup plan if if you're not finding the work that you want. 
And then you should certainly be doing some investigation, sending out your resume, seeing what the market looks like, because markets are very, very tough, especially right now. And I remember when we came to Dubai in 2001, as an attorney, I was thinking to myself, well, we have this thing called Dubai Internet City. I had done some legal work in that area. So I thought this will be great. I'll be able to find work. Huh? Sadly mistaken. (laughs) Didn't happen. So you have to, just because you read something that looks enticing, you can't just think that it's going to work out. You have to do a little bit more filtering and examination of that. So I think work is critical. Where are you going to live is critical. And I think culturally, if, if that's, you know, an issue, people have to look at that very carefully. So for example, some people might not feel comfortable living in a Muslim country. They may feel intimidated or they, they may say, well, you know, what's that really like? Maybe I'm not going to be intimidated living there. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll feel totally fine. And Dubai is that kind of environment, I believe. So I, I think people have to go beyond. They have to scratch the surface, at least with those three key aspects. And I think in all events, you have to look at it as a journey and an experience that most likely will bring you a lot of happiness. It won't be easy. No international move that I have ever made has been has been easy. It's okay. always taken me time to adjust. And, and I'm someone that's been living overseas for since 1986. That's mm-hmm. close to what, 38 years, 35 years. So we are, I'm talking about my own experience and saying it wasn't easy for me. And I don't know if if someone goes with a spouse who is in the same position as them and doesn't have any international experience. My husband, fortunately, had a lot of international experience. So I got a lot of emotional support from him when things were difficult. I think if if both people are lacking an international experience, it will be harder and they have to kind of be prepared for that. They have to look to other sources of emotional support. Maybe it's these groups we're mentioning. But in my view, I believe an international experience is wonderful. I think it can open your eyes to an awful lot of things. And if someone has the opportunity, I think if they can manage to do it, they should absolutely do it. Like your son with his possible opportunity to study in Turkey. If that can happen for him, I think it would be a beautiful experience. Um, our, our son did that and, and he, well, he grew up overseas, but he was in Hong Kong for school and Dubai for school. And then he went to Northwestern University in the States for, for college and to do his MBA at Kellogg. And he just loved having those international experiences. And now he's working in Zurich and I, you know, it's, it's been very well suited for him. He didn't have any traumas <laughs> making the transitions. It was pretty easy for him. And I think it was because he built up on those experiences as, as a young person and it just grew with him. So I think if your son has the chance, he should do it. Well, that's awesome. Actually, all, all three of my children have said that they want to at least study abroad. So my uh, my daughter is filling out her paperwork this year. She's a freshman in college and she's already looking to go abroad. She's uh, My kids are lucky, I think, because my husband lived abroad for many years. He lived in Germany. and so we've always taken them places. We joke like my kids don't have PlayStations, but you know, they've been to Rome. 
So <laughs> that's always something that we've kind of prioritized for them to see the world. Um, and I think as a result, they want to live abroad. And so I, I enjoyed this conversation a lot because I do think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about like what it means to either to live abroad permanently or even short term. I think that there's this notion that you you have to have a lot of money, that you have to be very sophisticated. And I, I do think that those are things that people have to keep in mind because as you mentioned, you know, there are financial traps, there are tax traps, but that shouldn't stop you from the other things that we've talked about, like the culture and and the experience of living abroad. Yes. And the sense of independence you will get from that experience is I think it's priceless. You will have to maneuver and figure out your next step every step of the way in your foreign country. That's why I said it's not easy. But when you've gone through that, you feel as if, oh, I can deal with this. You're right. I can deal with it. You know, it it comes much more naturally to you and you get a sense of empowerment. And I, I think that's wonderful for young people or older people. I'm seeing an awful lot online these days about how to retire abroad. You know, if you're an American living in the States, mm-hmm. how to retire abroad and have a wonderful life and for less money than you might be spending in the U.S. And I'm thinking, wow, people are looking looking outside of the, the pasture, you know. Maybe that's a good thing. But as you say, there are there are traps there. They have to be aware. And hopefully, Kelly, our tax system will start to adjust. I'm not seeing it happen, but I'm hopeful. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> well, that's an awesome note to end on, I think, the, a hopeful note. So thank you so much for being on the show today. This was great. And if folks wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on the internet or on social, where would you send them? Okay. Um, my, my tax blog website is probably a great source of information for people. If they look at the um, blog post categories, they will find they will find one for Americans abroad. That would probably be the one that they're most interested in. So they can access that at www. U.S. hyphen, not underscore, hyphen, tax.org, O-R-G. And I'm also available on Twitter at VL Yaker. So V-L-J-E-K-E-R. So that's the Twitter account. And if people just Googled my name, they'll find me. It's quite easy. I'll be sure to put these links in the show notes too, so that folks can find you. Again, thank you so much for being here. This was terrific. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.